You are listening to the CMC Podcast. Join us each week for messages designed to equip, inspire, and motivate. And now for today's uh, message from you, like student said, pastor Josh Barnett. talk about worship this morning. Our, our theme this year is essential. I believe that worship is an essential part of the believer's life. Um, if you're taking notes this morning, I've got a few points if you want to write them down. Uh, and I'm going to go right off the bat. Point number one is that we were created to worship. We were created to worship God. A.W. Tozer says that the biblically defined purpose for man is to worship God and enjoy him forever. We were created to worship. Now, Romans 1 makes it clear that we have all sinned, uh, that we've all sinned, that we all, uh, Paul lays it out, the case for it is that we all have, we were all created with a desire to worship. And what we did is we, we, we turned that desire from worshiping God to worshiping what he created. So everybody on the planet actually is worshiping something because we were created by nature, by design to worship. We all, uh, we all have been in that place where we refuse to worship God and our hearts and our minds find other things to worship. There's a propensity in our hearts where we make something top priority and whatever is top priority, that, that is getting our worships. Lots of times it's ourselves, it's, it's usually ourselves, uh, self-indulgence, but our hearts elevate things to top place. And what we need to know this morning, church, is that we become like what we worship. We were created in the image of God. When we look at him, when we behold him, Corinthians tells us that we are transformed into the image of Christ from glory to glory, that we look more and more like our creator, that we begin to reflect him. But the opposite is also true. Whenever we worship creation, we become like creation. We become like those things in which that gets our attention and our affection. Psalms actually makes it very clear. Psalms chapter 135 verses 15 through 18 says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. And those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. I love the way the Passion Translation says it. It says the unbelieving nations worship what they make. They worship their wealth and their work. They idolize what they own and what they do. Their possessions will never satisfy. Their lifeless and futile works cannot bring life to them. Their things cannot talk to them or answer their prayers. Blind men only create blind things. Those deaf to God can only make a deaf image. Dead men can only create dead idols, and everyone who trusts in this power in these powerless dead things will be just like what they worship, powerless and dead. So we become like what we worship. Jack Hayford said that worship changes the worshiper into the image of the one worshipped. So in simple, we become like what we look at. We become like what we behold. When, what we spend our, the most time in, our resources in, what we honor in our hearts, what takes top priority. Romans 1, again, clearly lays out this case. Verse 25 says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is praised forever. So we all worship something. Every human on the planet is worshiping. There is a need inside of us looking to be satisfied. There's a need inside of every person on the planet that is looking to be satisfied. Now, I believe that it is the grace and mercy and wrath of God 
that nothing satisfies it but him. It is the grace and the mercy and the wrath of God that nothing satisfies it uh, uh, but him because we were created by him and for him. (laughs) He's the one thing that satisfies us because he's what we were made for. Graham Kendrick said, everybody worships, whether it is a hero, possession, success, pleasure, a political cause, a carved idol, or oneself. The way we live and behave makes evident the things we love and give ourselves to. It is in our very nature to worship, and that inner drive is God-given. The disaster is that as part of a fallen race, we have replaced the object of our worship. To be converted to faith in Jesus Christ is to return to the worship of the true God and to dethrone all rivals to his authority. So good. Now, as believers gather today, we obviously know we are gathering to worship God. Like, duh, like I, that's why we're here. We are supposed to worship God. But we even have a propensity to make worship about us. A sneaky leaven sets in and we begin to define worship on our own terms. Instead of asking the creator how he wants to be worshiped or instead of going to scripture to see how he wants to, how he wants to be worshiped, we oftentimes take it in our own hands. So number one, we were created to worship. Number two, as believers, we have to understand we don't get to define worship. We don't get to define worship. We don't get to make graven images. We don't get to put God in our box. Interesting story in Exodus chapter 32 when Moses is coming off the mountaintop and Aaron has taken all the gold from the people of Israel and they have made a golden calf and they're worshiping this golden calf. What's wild is if you look at the Hebrew word when Aaron says, here is the God that brought you out of Egypt. If you look at the Hebrew word, Aaron literally says, here is Yahweh that brought you out of Egypt. Here is Jehovah that brought you out of Egypt. And so in a sense, the Israelites thought they were worshiping God. They wanted something that they could see, that they could fashion with their own hands. And this made God so angry that he wanted to wipe them out. And then Moses interceded for them. <laughs> I, lo- I love that story. It's a little, it's a little graphic, but um, I love when Moses comes down and he basically, he melts the calf he scolds Aaron, and then he's like, who's with me? And the Levites run to him, and then he tells the Levites, he's like, wait your swords. And now go through the camp. <laughs> and it's, it's wild, it's, it's pretty, pretty, pretty bad. But we see through that story how much God hates that. When we try to worship him the way that we create in our own mind, the way that we want to worship, we have to be sure that we are not making idols out of worship movements, out of leaders, out of songs, out of atmospheres. We actually, this sounds odd, but we actually can worship worship. We actually can worship worship. We can worship feelings and emotions and goosebumps and fuzzies. And I love all those things, I'll take them all. But they have to come from me worshiping him. I don't wor- we don't worship a feeling, we worship Jesus. So I'm not chasing emotion. God can use emotions during worship. I, I want him to. But I don't lift my hands because I feel like lifting my hands. I lift my hands because he's worthy. <laughs> it's so easy to fall into a trap where we worship the movement instead of the mover. 
energy and praise aren't the same thing. You can have lots of people moving and lots of people clapping and lots of people singing and lots of movement and energy taking place in the room and it not really be about God. It can very easily become about us. Just because people are jumping up and down and clapping does not mean that it's actually true praise. We worship Jesus because he's worthy. Not only, and we worship him not just when it's comfortable and convenient, not just when it's your favorite songs. Well, I really couldn't enter into that and like the songs. Well, I have good news. They weren't for you. We are not here to worship you. We're not here to worship me. The band, the songs, we're here to worship Jesus. Now, there's a question that is, gets asked often, and, and I don't think that the motive is always necessarily bad, but I think maybe we need a repentance or a change in the way that we think about the question. The question oftentimes that it get, gets asked at churches is how was worship today? Sometimes we mean, was the band good today? Was the song choice good today? Did the people respond well today? So the worship team's job, the worship, the, the leaders up here on the stage, their job actually isn't to get you to respond. Their job is to make Jesus the center of their attention and affection. And then it's your choice of whether you're going to enter into that or not. They're not your cheerleaders. We have to be careful what we mean when we ask how was worship today. Maybe we should ask God first. How was worship today? Was it a pleasing aroma to him? Was it, was it real fire or was it strange fire? You look at Aaron's sons and they burned what God called strange fire because they took their worship and, their, and then God struck them dead. <laughs> did we center around a golden calf that we called worship today or did we center around the lamb? We're not gathering around a sermon, around the worship team, or even fellowship and community. We're gathering around a man. We're gathering around Jesus this morning to lift up his name in worship. This is the chief primary purpose of church, to gather to worship him. Worship is not a prelude to the sermon. Worship is the point. It is the point. Now, I do believe that reading scripture and preaching and teaching, that that is a form of worship. But the reason that we do worship first in the service is because that's why we gather. We gather to worship him corporately, to lift up the name of Jesus. It's the reason that we're here. So, so why are we doing a whole night of worship on Wednesday? Why are we doing uh, worship and prayer sets on Thursday morning when only 10 people can come? Because he's worthy. Because he's worthy. Why? There's different movements uh, across the earth where there, there's 24-7, 365 prayer and worship rooms where it, where it never stops. Well, why would somebody put time and energy and resources into making that happen? Because he's worthy. He's not just worthy at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday morning. He's worthy Monday through Saturday as well. He was worthy at 9 a.m. this morning. He'll be worthy at 9 p.m. tonight. He was worthy 10,000 years ago, and he'll be worthy 10,000 years from now. He's worthy all the time. It's just Jesus. <laughs> And that, that actually King David established a night and day worship teams, different teams of musicians that came in the temple that worshiped nonstop all the time because he is worthy. I love David's heart for worship in scripture. 
I, I love when he, when he uh, finally became the king over the whole nation of Israel. He was just king over the southern kingdom for seven years, and then he took over, was able to take over both kingdoms. And the first thing that he said is, we're going to get the ark. The ark of the covenant had been taken by the Philistines, and the, his first decree as king is, we're going to get God's presence. I love that heart. And so in 2 Samuel, we're not going to go there just for sake of time because I do want to end with some worship today, but 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, you have the story about how he goes and gets, he takes like 10,000 men and he goes and gets the ark and they put it on a cart and they begin to carry it back. It was carried by two men named Uzzah and Ohio. Interestingly enough, their names mean strength and friendly. They're moving this cart back to Israel, or back to Jerusalem, and the ox stumbles. Uzzah, one of the guys carrying the ark, or, or, or walking with the ox in the cart, he reaches out to, seems like good intentions, to keep the ark from falling over. And when he touches the ark, it says that the Lord's anger aroused against him and struck him dead. And David, like, freaks out. David's just like, what in the world, Lord? Like, why would you do that? Like, I'm trying to bring your presence back to Jerusalem and you kill a man. Like, I can't believe this. And then he gets really afraid and they just like basically dump the ark in this guy's barn and run off. For three months, he's like, he's terrified. And just thinks like, like I can't have the Lord's presence here because he kind of goes into this other mode of like, I'm a sinful man. I don't want to kill anybody else. And he leaves God's presence here. The, The issue is though, is that David wasn't being obedient. His heart was in the right place where he wanted to worship the Lord, but he began to do it on his own terms. The ark, he, if, he should have known. The ark was not supposed to be carried on an ark. It was only supposed to be carried by the Levitical priest. But he wants to move it quickly. Hmm. Carrying it on foot doesn't seem very convenient. Doesn't seem very comfortable. Doesn't seem very practical. And the ark wouldn't have never been in danger of falling if it had been carried the way that God commanded. But there had been a loss of holy fear of God and his commands. Uzzah had become familiar with the things of God. It had become commonplace, mundane, habitual, ordinary, religious, when it was supposed to be intimate, reverent, and fearful. Interesting enough, the, man's, the man whose name was Strength was the one who tried to stop it from falling. Perhaps churches are trying to carry the Lord's presence on their own strength and trying to be friendly as we come in that we are actually mishandling the presence of God. Because we don't come in with reverence and fear and awe and wonder of who he is. I'm not anti-people being strong and I'm not anti-people being friendly. But I think the Lord does things, there's things in scripture for a reason. And I think we can easily lean on our own strength and maybe and we try to draw people to God's presence with our friendliness. Again, friendly is not a bad thing. I'm just saying a lot of churches in America right now, their services are friendly and they're convenient and they look really strong. But are they actually stewarding and hosting the presence of God like God wants them to? <clears throat> it's not about what feels good, it's about what pleases him. I'm sure David asked for God's blessings on what what he was doing, but David didn't bother to check to see if it was what God actually wanted to do. 
Worship is not about what pleases or suits us, but about what pleases him. It's not about being convenient or fast. God is going to move in his timing the way that he wants. God is going to move in his timing the way that he wants. He will not be confined to our carts, to our schedules, to our services. He will move when he wants to the way that he wants to. He's the leader. David's good intentions weren't enough. He actually had to obey what God said. So number one, we were created to worship. Number two, we don't get to define how we worship. God does. Which moves into number three, worship is a lifestyle. Worship is a lifestyle. It's more than music and singing. It's more than clapping and raising our hands. The, the primary function of how we worship is obedience. It's obedience. It's not just coming in here singing songs. It's actually leaving here and being obedient to his voice. <laughs> Many times in scripture, God denounces people who honor him with their lips and their hearts are far from him. Isaiah chapter one, he actually says that their sacrifices and their worship is detestable to him because they leave those, the, those places and they don't obey him. We're actually supposed to live a holy lifestyle. Colossians 3.17 and 3.24 talks about how we, everything that we do in word or deed, do it for the glory of the Lord. So everything that we do is worship, not just, not just coming in here singing songs, but actually when we leave this place, this, in the Old Testament, the same word for work, the Hebrew word, the same word for work is worship. They're used interchangeably because to the Hebrews, it wasn't different. Worship was not something they did, it's who they were. And so what if, what if we approached our jobs like, we, like it was worship for the Lord? Might change our perspective on it. We might not dread Monday morning so much. <laughs> what if we looked at our jobs? What if we looked at washing the dishes or doing laundry as a form of worship? Dating our spouse and rolling around with the kids. What if everything became holy? First Peter 2, 9 says that we are a royal priesthood. So everything we do is about ministering to the Lord. And so what if everything we did became this holy, worshipful lifestyle? What if we had a perspective shift? Those things actually would get much more enjoyable. <laughs> what if we viewed mowing the lawn and changing diapers as holy? Maybe our attitude would change about them. Maybe we would, we would have the joy and peace and righteousness that is available in the kingdom of God instead of anxiety and frustration about everything that we don't want to do. <laughs> Worship is a lifestyle. It's, it's not dependent on our current circumstances. Worship isn't dependent on our circumstances. He's worthy whether your circumstances are good or your circumstances are bad. He's worthy of worship. <laughs> no matter what church, like, no matter where we're at in life, our song has to stay the same. Our song has to stay the same. I mean, you look at the, the, the New Testament church, you read the book of Acts. These dudes were facing a lot more persecution than we are. And they were having the time of their lives. You look at Peter and John, they got beat on the temple steps and they went back rejoicing. They were excited that they got to share in the sufferings of their Savior. And then you look at Paul and Silas, they're in prison. Their heads and arms are bound where they can't move. And what's the first thing they do? Sing praise. Sing praise. It wasn't dependent on where they were or what they were going through. 
Our song remains the same. On the mountaintops and in the valleys, in the spring seasons and the winter seasons, our song is supposed to remain the same. Worship is a lifestyle. And if we have that worship mindset, that that worship mindset, that worship lifestyle, that is like the entryway into the kingdom of God. Worship isn't what we do, it's who we are. We can't just view worship as getting together on Sunday mornings to sing some songs. We have to view worship as the way that we live. Romans 12, 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. (laughs) That's not just on Sunday morning, that's every day that we are a living sacrifice to God. Not my will, God, but yours be done today. That is true and proper worship worship now there's so that's lifestyle worship that there there's there's really three types of worship you could call these three types of prayer too but there's your private worship there's corporate worship and there's lifestyle worship all three should fuel each other your private worship that's 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 your personal relationship that's your abiding time that's your remaining with him And, and where you go in and and I'll say this too, like, don't get legalistic about how much time you pray and read your word and spend with him. I think God is much more concerned with quality than quantity. So give, you know, if you can give him 10 undistracted minutes, I think he would prefer 10 undistracted minutes than an hour of splitting your time with Facebook. But church, I promise you that if we will abide, if we will remain, if we will go after that quality time, Monday through Saturday, If we all did that this week and we came back in here on Sunday and we all had been faithful in the secret place, corporate worship would become exponentially more powerful. Why? Because we would all come in with hearts in love and ready to worship Jesus together. It's just gonna happen. And listen, then your corporate worship moments, like what I'm praying what's gonna happen at the end of service today is that corporate worship would then fuel your desire for encountering him every day. And so like, let these two build each other. And then you have a lifestyle worship where, okay, while you're going about your day and doing things and driving to work and washing dishes and mowing the lawn, while you're doing those things that you're in constant communion with him, that you're in constant worship, that you're constantly singing songs to him and praying to him and praying in the spirit and talking to him and listening to his voice, where you make that lifestyle and all three of those will fuel each other and you'll begin to experience the kingdom. You'll begin to experience righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Ghost. It's incredible. It's amazing. Eternal life started the day that you gave your life to Jesus. You weren't just, we're not just here to survive this earth and can't wait to make it to that sweet by and by. I'm, I'm looking forward to the day of sweet by and by, but, but the New Testament makes it clear that the kingdom is available now. Jesus didn't save you so that you could go to heaven one day when you die. That is an awesome perk, but he actually saved you to build the kingdom of God on earth now. You cannot build something that you're not residing in. That's a good point, Josh. Thank you for that. (laughs) Okay, so now, now my last point. So we were created for worship. We don't get to define worship. Worship is a lifestyle. Number four, worship is always sacrificial, extravagant, and undignified. True worship is always sacrificial, extravagant, and undignified. 
Three stories in scripture that I want to talk about real quick. You can write these references down and go read them later. Luke 7, verses 36 through 50, is when Jesus is in Simon's house. He's in Simon's house, he's reclining, he's eating, he's hanging, Simon was a Pharisee, he's hanging out with these other Pharisees, these, these other church people, that's who he's hanging out with. And this woman from the streets, probably a prostitute, comes into a dinner meeting that she's not invited to, that she never would have been allowed to join, and she comes in and she anoints his feet, and she begins to wipe his feet with her hair and her tears and the oil, and she's just weeping, and, and the religious people there, man, they're offended. If this dude only knew who was on his feet right now. And so then Jesus goes into the parable of the two debtors where one owed a lesser amount than the other. Both were forgiven. Which one was more grateful? When Simon says, well, obviously the one that was forgiven more. And he says, he who is forgiven little loves little, but he who is forgiven much loves much. Simon didn't get it, but the point that Jesus was trying to make is, Simon, you are just as far away from me as this woman is. James makes it clear, if you've broken one law, you've broken them all. We are all on the other side of an inescapable chasm. And Jesus comes and rescues us. So that caused this woman to come and worship extravagantly regardless of what people said about her. Hmm. Then in Matthew 26 and in John 12, you have Mary of Bethany. Mary Bethany comes in and she breaks open her alabaster jar and she anoints him with a very costly perfume called nard and it would have been worth a year's wages. What's crazy about that is that Martha and Mary and Lazarus were extremely poor. And when she did that, there would have been an audible gasp in the room. And Judas and the disciples were offended. I can't believe she did this. I can't believe she sacrificed that much for him. And he basically, basically told him to shut up. This woman is going to be remembered throughout history because of what she did. What's incredible to me, Jesus says, she's anointing my body for burial. Who was dead the chapter before? Lazarus. So what she did not pour out on her old brother, she, on her own brother, she poured out for Jesus. What a sacrifice. What extravagant worship. And then you have King David. Once King David gets his act together and figures out the way that he's supposed to carry the ark and he goes back and carries the Lord's presence like he's supposed to, he comes into Jerusalem dancing like a fool. So much so that he had put on a, he was a king, he had put on a priestly ephod, he's dancing so hard it breaks and falls off of him. Wild. Let's go. It says that his wife was watching from the window, McCall. She's watching from the window. He gets home that night, and she's like, I can't believe you would dance that way. Can't believe you would dance that way. Can't believe you would shame yourself that way. You're embarrassing. And he says, woman, I will be more undignified than this. Why? Because he knew Jesus was worthy of it all. And say if you think this is for young people, David would have been in his mid-40s. Say if you think this is for, for young people, in Exodus chapter 33, 
33 verse 11, it says there's a verse, there's a verse there where it says Moses would go into the tent of meeting and he would talk to the Lord like one talks face to face. And, jo- and his young aide, Joshua, the son of Nun, would go in there with him. When Moses left, Joshua, the son of Nun, would remain. So Joshua would stay in the tent. For how long? It doesn't say, but longer than Moses. It says his young aide. Do you know how young Joshua was? 56. Young man. Yeah, come on. Yeah, Paul's like, yes, come on. But say we think that these messages are for youth group. Listen, he was worthy when you're 15. He's worthy when you're 25. He's worthy when you're 50. He's worthy when you're 90, and he's going to be worthy when you're 115. He's worthy. It's like, it's like that we feel like we mature to a place where he, where, where he no longer desires us to worship him passionately anymore. And that's just like a young person thing. It doesn't seem like it. It doesn't seem like it in Scripture. I actually believe that our passion is supposed to grow for the Lord. May, I think our passion wanes because we stop throwing logs on the fire. I know life gets hard. I know hard things happen. I know loss and rejection happens. But he's still worthy. He's still worthy. Real worship is sacrificial, extravagant, undignified. And in these three stories, we see that it's always offensive to the religious spirit. It's always offensive to the religious spirit. I'm not talking about drawing attention to yourself. That can be selfish, even demonic. I'm not talking about people looking at you, but people encountering Jesus. And we've got to come to a place of maturity church where it's okay for people to have an encounter in his presence. It might look weird, sound weird, be be distracting, but if it's genuine, what's the problem? If it's genuine, what's the problem? Notice in all three stories, the religious spirit is present. Simon and the other religious leaders couldn't believe this woman. Disciples were offended at Mary's costly act of worship, and Mikhail was offended by her husband David dancing wildly before the Lord. And I believe just like focusing, focusing is a choice, I think being distracted is a choice. You can, choose, you can choose to allow someone's act of worship to distract you and offend you, or you can press in. And you can focus on the man who should have your attention already. But what did Simon, the disciples, and McCall miss out on because they refused to honor the presence of Jesus? There's an interesting verse at the end of that chapter after David says that to McCall. It says, and she never had any more babies. Meaning David was never intimate with her again. What did religion cost her? It cost her a degree of intimacy that she was born for. I love you. It's quiet. This is not a young people thing. This is a lover of Jesus thing. Our age doesn't graduate us from passionate acts of worship. Don't let the fear of man drive your train. Don't worry about your reputation. What will people think of me if I worship the way I'm feeling in my chest right now? You know what will happen? The young people will love it. They're looking for people who will be real. You think they're weird because they're singing really loud and they're dancing and they're singing those funny songs over and over and over again. They think you're weird because you're sitting there with your arms crossed, unmoved. 
So the train goes both ways. You think they're weird and they think you're weird. But it's like we get brainwashed and thinking that our passion just is supposed to wane down and it's not. He's still worthy. He's still worthy. The Father is looking for worshipers. And listen, I have been told before that I've been distracting in worship. That's okay. I have heard people say that you don't have to do all those things to earn his affection. To which my response is, I'm not doing it to earn anything. I'm doing it because I got it. I don't do it to try to get his attention. I do it because I already have his attention. That's the shift, man. If you can get that revelation of, love, of the love of God in your heart, that you have his attention, you will dance wildly before the Lord. And you won't care what anybody says or what anybody thinks. Listen, these, these altars aren't just for offering time. You can come and kneel at these altars whenever you feel led to. The Father is looking for those who would worship in spirit and in truth. And in spirit, God is spirit. And our spirits worship him through the Holy Spirit. And it's not a flesh thing. I don't worship the way my flesh feels. I worship because my spirit is responding. And then I worship in truth. My heart responds to the truth about who he is. There's something going on in my heart. And then, and then I make my body submit to what's going on in my heart. If Jesus were to physically walk in the room right now and you were to change your posture of worship, can you say that you're worshiping in truth? And listen, I know everybody's on different levels. I'm not, I'm not saying that everybody's got to dance and everybody's got to kneel and everybody's got to lay before the Lord. I know people worship in different ways and I'm totally fine with that. But where's your heart posture? He's looking for worshipers. He's looking for people who are chasing him. Not cool songs, not cool church, not emotions or sensations, just him. And he comes and he moves on the hearts of people that are completely his. He actually enthrones himself there. Psalms 22 says that he enthrones himself on the praises of his people. So I want to end today with, well, how do I get there? How do I worship that way? How do I worship sacrificially and extravagantly and undignified? How do I worship that way? How do I worship in a way that is honoring to him? How do I get that true, honest worship? And I want to let you know, you don't have to cry. You don't have to kneel. You don't have to dance. All of those things are awesome. You don't have to do those things. What I'm saying is like, what is the Lord prompting you to do in your heart? Put him in your mind's eye, sing the songs, and then respond into obedience to what he wants. Maybe try lifting your hands. Maybe try kneeling at the altar. I know singing is a lot for some, so start there. Look, like they have the microphones because they sing really good. And we don't because we don't sing really good. But God loves your voice. And their voices, I prom- we have awesome speakers in here. What a blessing. And so their voices will be louder than yours. But maybe just start with singing the songs. That may be a big step for you. And that's awesome. He's not necessarily looking for outward craziness, but for hearts that are his. And the key to me is Psalms 100. We enter into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. We enter into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. And we all have something to be thankful for. 
Every one of us. Go back to Simon. We all have something to be thankful for. That was the point for Simon. We've all been forgiven much. We were all dead. We were all dead in our sins and our trespasses. And Jesus came and made us alive and he brought us into his kingdom. He brought us into eternal life. Don't let religion cause that to become old news. It's not old news. That is something that we're going to be praising him for 10,000 years from now. I'm going to have the band come back out and I want to end with, with worship. What if that was our heart posture though every time we came in service? Every time we came in on Sunday morning where our heart posture was thankfulness, was thanksgiving. From that place of thanksgiving, from that place of thankful, like thanks and I'm giving something to you. Not what can I get from you God, but I'm thankful and I'm giving something to you because of what you did. And it says that you enter into his gates So when you come with a heart posture of thanksgiving, you actually get into his presence. And as you get into his presence, the next step is true praise. I think praise is just an overflow of thanksgiving. And when that praise bubbles up on the inside of you and you begin to declare it, he comes and he enthrones himself and guess where it takes you? Into the king's court. You get to come into his court. So there's degrees of this. When we come with true worship, we get to get closer and closer to his throne room. Closer and closer to him. (laughs) It gets us face to face with our king. Worship, uh, one of my favorite worship leaders, his name is Chris Burns. He says, worship isn't about getting God to be present. It's about getting us to be present. Because God doesn't come or show up in worship. We do. And we realize he was there all along. As we magnify him, we realize that he's in the room. He's actually here. He said, we're two or three gathered together. One, two, three, we're good. He's here in the room because we're gathering in his name. We're gathering to center our lives and our worship around his presence. So he's really here, not, not like conceptually here or theoretically here. No, Jesus is actually in the room. And he, al- he always comes, but don't let our church be a house of Simon where we invite him in where he comes, but we don't honor his presence. He's really here in a way that we can feel him, in a way that we can encounter him, see him, and experience him. And I want you to know this morning, it's not emotionalism to pour your heart out. It's not emotionalism to pour your heart out. Man, I see see people get really emotional over some things that they don't call emotionalism. I see people pour out their praise when the Razorbacks score a touchdown. Or hit a home run or whatever sport you watch that they do. They're usually not good at much except for baseball. I'm a fan. I'm not saying that's, I'm just saying they're just usually bad at some things. But I've seen, I've seen grown men come out of their chairs rejoicing over a touchdown, rejoicing over a home run. Rejo- and it's like, where's that on Sunday, man? Your kids are seeing you jump off the lazy boy in excitement over a basketball game, but do they see you do it over Jesus? Do they see you do it over Jesus, the one who's worthy of that worship? the one who deserves that worship, the one who has done a lot more for you than some 19-year-old kid that caught a ball. 
Does he still move you, man? Does he still move you the way that he used to? Is he still your first love? Is he still your first love? And I'm all for being still before God and I'm all for standing in reverence and all before him because some people say, well, that's not very reverential to be to dance and shout and clap and do it. It's not very rever- It's not like really the fear of the Lord. And I would say that's wrong. That is the fear of the Lord. Men who encounter him in this word don't stand still. They usually fall on their faces. The angels right now in heaven are going holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they've been saying that for 10,000 years. And they're going to say it for the next 10,000 years. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. So lest you think our songs are repetitive, just wait till you get in the throne room. That's all they're saying is holy, holy. And the, the 24 elders are just constantly standing up and casting their crowns before him. And then it's like they forget what he looks like, so they put their crowns back on and they stand back up. And it's like, oh my gosh, and they have to throw their crowns back down. That's all that's happening over and over and over again in the throne room because he's worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy. So I'm not pressuring you into anything. I just want to give you permission this morning that it's okay to stand. It's okay to kneel. It's okay to lift your hands. And listen, I know the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. And so if you need to sit down during worship, that's fine. The whole point is, where's your heart at this morning? Where's your heart when we come into worship? Is it distracted? Is it worried about how other people are worshiping? Or is it solely fixed on the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was and is and is to come? Let's stay in this morning.